We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. We're here in studio with Representative Josh Elliott. Um, and again, you you represent which district is it? I'm the 88th district representing exclusively Hamden. Hamden. And mm-hmm. is that where you grew up? No, I grew up in Guilford. In Guilford. I'm in Hamden because I went to Quinnipiac Law. And we have a family business that's there. I went to high school there. So had a lot of interaction with Hamden. So, okay. So in terms of your, your state rep in the 88th mm-hmm. and you're involved in the family business time and season? Correct. And you had another business, but that- Common Bond in Shelton. Yep. And it closed. Correct. And so- Okay, so why'd you go to law school? I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was 25. I had taken the LSAT a year prior. Uh, I figured that it could be a good basis for politics, for business. Didn't, so you I mean, always I, wanted to get into politics? You did? Well, I helped on my very first campaign in 2009 in Virginia. A buddy of mine was actually running a House of Delegates race down there, so I spent about a year doing politics. But Honestly, at that time, I had a few friends that were in law school. I just, again, didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, okay, got a good scholarship. It was close to home, close to the business. I said, all right, let's do this and just see where it takes me. And do you feel like it serves you? I mean, because a lot of people in the in the back in the day, it was sort of like a prerequisite to go to law school to be a politician. And now that's not really the case. Um, does the, Are you glad you did it? Very glad. I mean, my advice to people is think about it. Uh, if, if it's already in your head, go through the steps. If you aren't going to go and get a really good scholarship, maybe don't do it. If you don't know exactly what you want to do, maybe don't do it. But I think a lot of people that go to law school end up telling people, not worth it. It was a headache. The amount of work is way too much. Uh, for myself, I think that it helps change the way that you think. It helps provide an analytical eye. But I, I think more than that, it also helps you sort of depersonalize arguments. And so one of the lessons that I learned huh. in law school was uh, that there's sometimes no right answer. And it's just how well do you argue something? Well, the passion that's involved. I, I find that, you know, state politics are a lot more reasonable I agree. than national politics. And I, I, I still think it gets a little weird sometimes, but generally speaking. And, you know, I wanted to just switch back because I, I want to talk about, you know, your role – you self-define as a, as a progressive, is yeah. that okay? Yeah. And and I guess I'll put aside the business because I was going to ask you how business was. And I was going to ask you, you know, whether you think <laughs> sure. you should be a full-time. Well, legislators should be full-time in Connecticut or not, but we can we can we can put a, a pin in that for a little bit later because you know, as a progressive, like what is that? You know, now in in the way it is nationally, when you say progressive, people just immediately jump to Bernie Sanders and AOC. Sure. And so what does it mean to you to be labeled or label yourself as such? My mother is a bit conservative. I didn't grow up in a, a household that was really political at all. So my, I don't know, I don't even want to say ideology. My bent evolved over the course of years. And I've come to a point where I don't see, and I'm going to answer the question. I just want to talk around it for a sure. second. You can talk around all you want. <laughs> I don't see a conflict inherently between being progressive and being conservative. What my viewpoint is, is that 
progressivism, the way that I define it, is just about looking around the world, seeing things that you think could be better, could be fixed, and working to fix those things. And to me, conservatism is saying uh, if you go too far, you don't know what the impacts are going to be. And sometimes you could be doing more damage by trying to fix something than by letting something alone. And I think that the natural conflict and tension between those two is actually really healthy. And so, you know, that's part of my evolution and sort of jumping off the point that you just made, which is that our political culture in Connecticut is healthy. I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I have strong relationships with both moderate and conservative members of the Democratic caucus, but members of the Republican caucus writ large. I go out for beers with Vin Candelore, the minority leader, semi-regularly a couple times a year. And there's so much that we can talk about that we agree on. And the, the amount that we disagree on is actually really, really small. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I do think that it would be better served if the Republican Party was a little stronger here in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I think divided government can be sometimes the most productive government. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes government, you know, I, I we can talk about this all day, but like, do you think that, are you worried about the size of government at all? Because I mean, if we agree that it can be a force for good, it isn't always a force mm-hmm. for good, but does it concern you at all the size well, of it. when let's just hone in on that. When we say size, we're talking about spending, we're talking about number of employees, we're talking about policies that are enacted. I I, I think it's it's sort of a hard. I think it's the answer. first two and not the latter. I I think it's when okay. when I say size of government, I mean the amount of spending and the and the amount, just the actual size, and that could translate into the amount of people working for the state. It's just the scope and how much of the overall economy that it consumes. Right. So we are, in terms of our the number of employees that work for the state, I want to say we're around like 230,000, and uh, that's everything everywhere across the entire state. Um, oh, no, sorry. I think I'm getting these numbers mixed up because uh, I've been looking so much about our pension obligations over the course of the last 50 years. Sure, yeah. So I, I take that number back immediately. What I do know is that we're down about 10% from where we were a decade ago. And so our workforce is a lot lower. It might be 23,000, which is off by a factor of 10. So I see you looking it up now. So I'm we'll, trying we'll to find it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, might, it might be closer to 23,000. Um, so that, that's that's the first thing. The, the second thing is that uh, we have about a 23 to $24 billion a year budget. Um, in terms of that spending, yeah, we have our agencies, but we also have money that goes back to towns for education. We, we have money that goes towards transportation. Uh, and we're taking into account what our fixed costs year over year. And certainly we have tons and tons of debt. I, I would not make the argument that we have an incredibly large government if you look at ourselves across the board and uh, what other states are doing, especially uh, per capita. I mean, we're one of the wealthiest states in the country. So uh, I, I personally do not have a big problem with the size of government. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about this. But we want to talk about weed, taxes, sure. voting. I mean, really important stuff that you have uh, really you know strong opinions on and really debate you know it's a good conversation to have and i look forward yeah. to it we have to take a quick break here at 817 broadcasting from the johnson brunetti studios this is brian and company on wtic news talk 1080 uh, we're back here with representative josh elliott here from the 88th district and we're talking about a bunch of different issues and we were talking about the size of government i mean bob stefanowski came on last week and he he talked about state spending going from forty to forty-five billion, and he's he still thinks we spend too much. I, I I don't really. Government just grows by the sheer force of everything going on. I don't sure. know how you can go backward, but I do I do worry about, you know, like healthcare is one of those things where I don't know what to do because I I think it is. 
a right, not a privilege. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that the government is the right place to do it. So like, but what do you what do you do? Right. What do you do? I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I've always I don't know all of it. You're a lawyer. I don't know all these different rules about interstate commerce and all the things that sort of set up some sort of fabricated inability to truly compete. Like if it was really a market-based issue, I think prices would come down. But for some reason, we can't get a market-based dynamic because of all the rules. The way that I interpret this, not saying this is right, this is the way that I interpret it, is that you have the insurance companies and the hospitals basically holding a gun to each other's head. So you have the hospitals that are charging more and more and more, and the insurance companies that are giving out a lower and lower percentage to the hospitals, and they're both just in an arms race, and it's just totally who keeps the gets to keep a bigger piece of the pie, right? And yeah. it's divorced from a market. So since it's divorced from a market, the only entity that I see as being able to step in and actually bring all of this down and keep things in check. Is going to be government. I, I don't know any other way to yeah. to resolve that. I just when I think of government getting involved, and I just think of inefficiencies. I think of bloated payrolls and stuff like that. But if you can't, if you truly can't come up with a market based solution, then I don't know. I don't know because I do think it is a right, and not not a privilege. And yeah. So that, but that's not an issue. I want to I wanted to get into taxes because you recently wrote the piece. And I think one fundamental thing, if you didn't, it, I think it was in, was it in CT Insider? Uh, it was in the current, Harvard mm-hmm. Current, yep. is, you know, the tax structures are broken. And listen, I, I'm a card carrying member of the middle class. I got three college tuitions I got to right. have to pay for, and I'm right. screwed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in, I, it's brutal. And, but what would you do if I gave you, what is your, so if, if people don't want to read the piece, but what is your blue sky? Like, if you said the tax, tax structure is broken, mm-hmm. so if I gave you carte blanche, what would you do? So first, I would just look at the data and see what the data says. So in 2014, 2019, and another one dropping in the next, I don't know, the next week or two weeks, it's a tax incidence study. And what this says is how much each income decile pays in state and local taxes. A lot of my reasoning stems from the data. And what I mean by this is that the more money you have in our state, the less you're paying as a percentage of your income to state and local taxes. That in large part is due to the fact that we are heavily reliant in Connecticut on the property tax. And I was thinking even on my drive up here, I don't believe in a flat tax, but my God, one single flat tax would be better than what we have because we have a purely regressive tax. And I just have a problem with the fact that once you're wealthy and you've outrun the day-to-day cost of living, that money just continues to accumulate far past uh, what inflation is. And people that are in the middle class, people that are the working poor, you actually have government that comes in and charges people more just to live. And so that's what I have a problem with. So what I would be aiming toward is a more fair tax that says that you need not necessarily even more help, but people that are wealthy are essentially getting giveaways from the state by not having a fair tax system. Because there's a cap on certain, like like Social Security taxes, where there's a cap, and after a certain amount of income, you don't have to pay anymore. Like what? Where is the advantage? Because the tax brackets don't continue to go up as you get more money. So we have progressive. Because if tax you structures. if you over if you change tax on the wealthy, this is the Lamont sort of nuance. They'll leave, they'll leave, they'll leave yeah. and that's the problem. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some studies, uh, this uh, economist Cristobal Young, he was over at MIT, is at Cornell now. But we have longitudinal data that show that people's decisions about whether to stay or leave a state are not dependent on what that state does with regard to taxes. So, 
you're going to know somebody who's rich who leaves. You're going to know people who are richer saying that they will leave. The thing is that we know that people either A, don't leave statistically, or anytime, anytime somebody does leave, somebody comes in and buys up their home. We know Fairfield County, Greenwich, Westport, Stanford, that houses aren't staying on the market. They go on, they immediately are bought up. Somebody who can afford that house is moving there. And we've also seen population explosion over the last few years. Is it possible that somebody leaves? Yes. And you could say, well, people are wealthy. They uh, have an easier time moving. The fact is that people that are leaving are generally people in the middle class. The average uh, income for people that were leaving was around $100,000, which I think is like, you know, maybe a little bit upper middle class. I think it depends. So you're on essentially you saying it. it would be a net, it'd be net neutral if you increase taxes on the wealthy that. It, it wouldn't end up hurting from a tax revenue standpoint. I would say it would be net positive. And for me, A, net positive, B, uh, helps fix the tax code and just make sure that it's fair. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. And that, and I want to say ask specifically, I know you want the data, but I'm not a tax expert. Sure. But that, where, where would you, where would you, where do you think the taxes are unfair on the wealthy and how would you right-size it? So I... Do you have any specific ideas? Is it about an income level? Is it a, you know, another bracket? Like I sure. don't, I don't. Really... There's one major antagonist, and there's one major fix. The major fix is the income tax because it's the fairest, and the major antagonist is going to be the property tax because it's the least fair. I think the easiest way to think about this is that if you're ultra wealthy, I don't know, what do you own a million dollar home and what you're paying in state and local taxes? Greenwich has a mill rate of 11 mills. Hamden right now, as an example, has a mill rate of 57. I'm not saying it was really well managed over the course of decades. It wasn't, but a lot of towns are in the position of having mill rates over 30. And then if you in the middle class own a, let's say, $300,000, $350,000 home, the amount that you pay in taxes as compared to your income is going to be such a higher percentage than if you're a multimillionaire who owns a million-dollar home and the way that those property taxes interact with your income. And then the only way to offset how bad those taxes are, how regressive those taxes are, is the progressive income tax. So, yes, exactly like you said, I would have some upper tax brackets that it increase the amount that the wealthy pay. You could even have more credits uh, for the people that pay a little bit less. But then we should also be sending more money back from the state that collects these more fair taxes back to towns to help them offset these property taxes and hopefully lower mill rates. We're talking with Representative Josh Elliott here on Brian and Company on WTIC News Talk 1080. We we only uh, we only have like a minute here, so I, I instead of going to voting, I'll go to weed. Um, I read the piece that Dan Har did when it first started, and you sort of went around yeah. with him a little bit. Uh, you, you know, well, there were two pieces. There was there was one before it passed, and then one after it passed. That was actually a follow up. Oh, it was. About. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I always felt like because uh, Connecticut was so late to it. That it wouldn't be some tax boon that people thought, and it's like, I well, agree. And, and I never thought it was such a big deal. It's just like with, with like gambling, people are focused on sports betting. I think sports betting isn't isn't both the huge upside or huge scary thing for me. It's it's actually online casino gaming, mm-hmm. which doesn't have a time. You can do it any time of day. You don't need a game, and there's no people could 
lose everything. Right. But when it comes to weed, I just thought it was going to be a compliment. And because we're so late to the game that, you know, it's not a big deal anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it really isn't anymore. We have to find a way to test for it in the cars and stuff like that. But generally speaking, I didn't think it was that big a deal. Now, having said that, how do you think it's rolled out here? If you think it's been okay? Well, my perspective is that, A, very frustrating that it took us so long. Yeah. I think that- Silly. I mean, really. Really. I mean, the public was was well, excuse me, into the 70% in terms of approval rating. So we were uh, really dragging our feet, and it was due to you know the makeup of the legislature. That just is what it is. Sometimes it takes the legislature a little bit of time to more accurately reflect where the public is in terms of public policy. Fine. That would be a way of saying it's just too, too many old guys in there. Well, not necessarily. You know, you could be young and, and socially and, conservative. And socially sure, conservative. Yeah. Yep. Um, the alternate side to this is that we got to see what Colorado, California, Massachusetts did with their rollout. And if you perceive their rollout as being problematic, then we could take what we saw as problems and weigh in and try to fix it for Connecticut. So I think by and large, what we did to ensure that black and brown folk got access to the market because black and brown folk were disproportionately affected by the war on drugs, uh, that was a really good thing. One, one thing that I do have a problem with is that I do think that we have an incredibly heavy hand in terms of the regulatory market. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I'm probably more of a free market person than than maybe some of my more liberal colleagues. I don't think we need to be determining exactly how many weed stores we want. I think it should be about local control. If your town wants five, great. Will all five succeed? Probably, probably not. not. And so it's. I think your responsibility as an investor, as a grower, if you go win you're successful or you're not by how you run your business i don't see a problem with a glut in the market if there's a glut in the market the market will correct yeah. i i've i've one pushback on the mm. the equity element to it but we don't have time back with uh representative josh elliott uh, here on brian and company talking about a whole bunch of stuff you know i wanted to it sounded like i want to talk about voting for a second yeah let's do it so you know maine went to rank choice voting right mm-hmm. and and it seems like so you brought you brought up an amendment to a bill to introduce ranked choice voting to Connecticut, or right. you had a bill. We so we don't surprise people on the floor of the House. We talk about everything before we're going to do it. Everyone knows what's going to happen. So I've been working on this bill. In this case, it was a task force, or it was a study, one or the other. <laughs> and we had let the ranking member, that is the Republican member of the Committee of Cognizance, in this case it was GAE, uh, the the general, like everything election-related. Uh, it's an administrative and elections uh, committee. And so we let the ranking member know, hey, we're going to bring this bill out. We're going to talk about it for a half hour. We're not going to vote on it. So we're just. I, this was my ask. I'm the chair of screening for the Speaker of the House, which means that I'm essentially the traffic cop for uh, the legislature. So when a bill comes out of committee, I help determine where that bill goes, what other committee it goes to. I have, and can you kill? Well, anybody can kill a bill. Okay. <laughs> Making a bill uh, stay alive is is the hard part. Uh, I have a fair amount of influence in the caucus. 
And so the ask was that we simply talk about this for a half hour. Other bills were being negotiated. You know, time is short at the end of session. Every time you spend a minute on something that's not going to go anywhere right. is a minute that you could spend on something that can. In this case, there was some time that we had and said, I said to the speaker, hey, can we put this up on the board for a half hour? He said, sure. We talked to the other side. They said, sure. So we debated it for a little bit. So, yes, we did get a chance to actually talk about it on the board. It seemed like people House. took it as a joke. I, I was The article I read on it was kind of flippant about it, but- like this is a lot of push from a lot of people to do this, and other people are like it's too confusing. It's like I don't know necessarily feel like I I support ranked choice sure. voting, but it's a it's a viable option that's being pushed by a lot of, especially on progressive sides, where you basically put your one, two, and three, mm-hmm. and if they don't get a majority, it's an instant run. They weigh they weigh they weigh. The how many first place, how many second place, or how many third place? You, you, most keep, you, get, right? you just keep on knocking off whoever's in last place, and then retabulating, and you don't take that candidate into account on future tabulations. The whole goal is to get to at least fifty percent. And so right now, because people are very concerned about what this would look like in a general election setting, we're really only talking about this for presidential primaries. And we're talking about it for the municipal option so that if a municipality wants to use it, they can. So we're talking about very limited scope. And we want people to get comfortable with the idea. It might it might never happen. I think it's a better way to vote because I think that ensures that whoever gets there isn't someone who got there with, let's say, 35 percent of the vote in a five, six way race. I don't know. That person, yes, they got the most votes technically, but they don't have support from the majority of people. With a ranked choice voting system, you get somebody, in theory, who has the majority support. If you can't have your favorite, it's better to have your second or third favorite. Can someone who gets a a ton of second place votes kind of beat somebody who got more first place votes? That's that's possible, You have somebody who would, in a sense, in in a large... Six, seven way race who would not have gotten that 35% if it was just everybody comes out and votes, then you're done. Yeah, that's totally possible. I mean, and that's sort of the point of the system is that let's say this person who got 35% of the vote is so abhorrent to the other 65% of people that those other 65% would say, listen, we don't love all these other options, but this this person is definitely better than the person who got 35%. It allows for that system. So was it just a token thing? Is it going to come back up? Or is it something you actually – because like sometimes I've noticed in my short time doing this show is that you know an issue gets bandied about yes. and it grows as the years progress in terms of momentum to eventually happen. Sure. Or it just gets the same amount of small attention every year. Like there's the aid and dying stuff that comes up every sure. year and this and that. I mean is it something you feel strongly enough to pursue or is it, it- – it depends on who the people are that are leading uh, in terms of people that are elected, in terms of the people that are out there, advocates and activists on the issue. It also matters how much money is being put behind the issue and what is the the structure or entity that is pushing the issue. And I will say over the last year, we have more people that are putting money behind building an entity and creating a nonprofit and having an executive director and building out staff that is currently in the works. So what I would say is this idea isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, I don't know if it's going to become law next year in five years and 10 years or ever, but it is not something that is just going to subside into next year. It's still an issue. It's still an issue. All right. Uh, Josh Elliott joining us, uh, representative from the 88th District here. we got to take a quick break. Broadcasting from the Johnson Brunetti Studios, this is Brian and Company on WTIC News Talk 1080. I always feel like I should mic up the breaks, too, because <laughs> the conversations 
are always so interesting. Representative Josh Elliott joining us here on Brian and Company. You know, the one thing on voting, I just to put a ribbon on it, I think it's important to have the, as many people vote as possible. And engagement was so disappointing in this past election. I sure. mean, even the trends. I mean, Aruna Orlampalam seems totally capable, but... I went to law school with him, by the, the way. Oh, at Quinnipiac. Yeah. yeah, and he, I mean, his life is crazy I with know. those kids. And, I know. Uh, but t- the total number of votes for mayor in Hartford were the same amount that Bronin received in the last election. Brutal. It shows you that the people just aren't... Checked out. They're, they're just, just not. They're just totally checked out. So what do we do? What do we do? I don't know, man. I mean, we're all asking ourselves this question. We would all like people to vote. Listen, I put a bill out there that people on both sides of the aisle thought I was you want to require voting. Super I saw Super toxic. Yeah. People yeah. hated this idea. Yeah. I was working with Miles Rappaport. He was our Secretary of the State. And and so, and it makes people skin crawl. Like the government is going to come in with batons and like force you to vote and maybe even force you to vote their way. The whole goal behind this was to say, hey, listen, just like jury duty, we assume you're going to do it. We assume you want to be an active participant. We're just going to levy a minor fine. Right, we're, we're not going to put you in prison for six no, months if you don't vote. It was going to be like five, ten, fifteen bucks. And then if you write a, like a little letter that the government sends to you multiple times and says why you didn't vote, you say you just didn't want to. And so it's it, it's about prodding people into voting. Is this a catch-all? Is it a cure-all? No. Would it solve the problem entirely? No. I don't know if anything. Well, since does. that's not going to happen, like what can we? You know, f- you know, we talked off off Mike. I mean. You know, I, I think it's important to have as many people who are eligible to vote sure. vote. And that's about engagement. Sure. And then I, I also talked about how, like, I don't know, understand why it's bad to to really talk about the requirement of voter identification. But, you know, we can talk about that another day. But, like, how do you get more people to vote? Because you your idea it... that you put forth is not going to work because both people, both, you can keep it up, but both parties were like, sure. there's no way we're doing that sure. now. I think you have to make it more accessible. And then this is probably another dividing point is just this idea of early voting and no excuse absentee voting. You know, this idea of, people who are working nine to five, people who are working nine to eight, people working 60, 80 hours a week because they just need to put food on the table, have a hard time making it out to the voting booth. They don't see how government actually helps them. And so, A, they don't have time. A, they're feeling disaffected and they're feeling that government isn't actually doing the work that it should be doing to help them in their lives. I, I understand that. So if you get something in the mail and you have time to fill it out and you feel like you're educated, so Massachusetts and California, states actually send out a little packet to every single home that says, here are the candidates, here's their little bio, here's a little bit about them. Because if you're going to vote on your board of education or for city council, you don't know any of them. I went people. in for Windsor you don't know I, this last election. I didn't, know, I didn't know anybody. And right. And, and then so, you just vote based on signs you okay, saw. Okay, so you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you said, I'm going to vote for the party. But if you're, you know, like 70% of people in our state and you don't identify necessarily as either one of those parties, how do you make that decision? And so at least this, this helps. So I think putting more money into education, making sure that it's accessible, making sure that you can track your ballot, making sure that you trust it, having uh, signature verification systems. You're, you're, in favor really, of the, you're in favor of that. Having a fully yeah. transparent system. I, I'm in favor of it because if you want to talk about how do we get more people to vote, I think you need to make it easier. And then you need to address people's issues of how are we addressing fraud? How are we addressing issues of trust? How are we following our, our uh, ballots? How are we making sure that somebody else isn't you know getting these ballots and filling it in and putting their signature on it? And, and we have systems that have been in place in other states that are getting better and better and better, but what do these 
things require? They require money and they require time. They require expertise. And we're finally getting to a place where we are making these constitutional amendment changes. We just did it for early voting. We'll be doing it for no excuse absentee next year. And then we need to be dumping resources into this. Yeah, because you need to trust it. I think the biggest thing that I've learned it. as an adult is that I used to just unquestionably trust that it it works. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure I can do that. And so I, I do agree that we need to invest in it. We're talking with Representative Josh Elliott. I'm just curious. I have two questions. I'll get the one that I want to make sure I get in first. Sure. Do you want to run for governor? If the spot were to become available, sure. Yeah, it's a great position. I would appreciate it more than anything for the veto power. I just know as somebody who came from Quinnipiac Law School as a president for the Society for Dispute Resolution, having that level of power in a negotiation is is really, really important. And so that would be the thing that would interest me the most. But I think our governor's doing a good job. Do I agree with everything? No, I definitely don't. I think that they're, especially on fiscal issues, I think that I would like to see some things done differently. You want to spend more. I... I mean, I, it's here's here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. I would say that within the system of taxation that we have, I would prefer fairness. I think that if we were to simply, or I were to simply make the argument, I just want the rich to pay a little more and the people who are in the middle middle class and, and the working poor to pay a little bit less. Uh, that is something I'll be fine with. I would be fine with revenue neutral. The problem is that is not something that you can get people behind because if you don't have programming that comes as a result of making tax changes, I think it's a really hard and heavy lift. So you wouldn't primary Lamont, but you'd run if he doesn't run? No, I don't think any Democrat would primary Lamont or nobody that would be taken seriously down the line. He's just too popular and he's done a really good job in terms of day-to-day administration, yeah, yeah. which it's, is a, it's an important part of the job. And there's none of the other potential candidates who would you know sort of like no you step aside for it you would do it regardless of oh who, else who would i um no you got sean you got susan you have luke well and here's the reason i think that and josh if you well if you look at the way that i ran my secretary of state's race that primary i was a very issues focused person and i was really pushing a lot of people and let's just talk very quickly about early voting when i was out there a year ahead of time i was talking about two to three weeks of early voting which to people seemed crazy and now it's in place and now it's in place that's all i'm going to say is that i was looking to other states i'm very data oriented and there was nothing that was crazy about what i was saying it was uncomfortable to people because they were unused to it but yeah people were saying a week i've been in that position before too Uh, i and and i appreciate that it's crazy that people push you aside based on something and then soon after it's it's a part of things you're like why did i get dinged for this when it's a reality it's part of the job man Um, i'll remind people it's all good it's great to meet you josh we'll stay in touch i hope yeah representative josh elliott joining us here on brian cup we get it attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on netflix but what do people do with their ears well for one they're listening to audio Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.